Welcome to OnScript's Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study slash biblical world. Welcome back, OnScript Biblical World listeners. I am coming to you from Jerusalem, not just any place in Jerusalem, in the office of the president at Jerusalem University College. I'm looking across at Oliver Hersey, the president of JUC. And we're excited today to talk about the cultural backgrounds of the Bible. Oliver, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. I, uh, I love that we're here. I love that you're here. It's been wonderful having you on campus. And yeah, it's good. It's good to be together in the flesh recording this and uh, doing it across from a desk here. It's nice. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of different actually for what we've been doing on Biblical World. Most of the time there is a screen between whoever I'm recording with. And so it's fine. It's fun to... To, you know, to be together. And it's been really fun being on campus. In the biblical world. In the biblical world, doing regional explorations. We've been going to all these tells. We should and, talk about all the biblical world components on this campus at some point in time. Yeah, that's a good idea for a, a pod. I mean, really, not only are we in an office, but we're sitting on a tower from the first century AD. Exactly. So we're basically guarding Jerusalem. We're guarding Jerusalem. This, <laughs> that's, that's, this is exactly what my office is. I sit here and we can watch all different corners and it's yeah, a guard tower. For sure. <laughs> and, and so, I, you know, we're, we're, we're all doing all kinds of things on the podcast. We got our Geography and Judges series. We got our Egypt and the Bible series. We have the special text of the Ancient Near East series with Mary Buck. And that's uh, the stain. That's the stain, stain series, nice. you know, really nice name. And so we were talking as, as you know, and we, we wanted to do a, a cultural background series. And I thought that, you know, one of the best places to start is the book of Ruth. And so that's what today's episode is about. The cultural background of the book of Ruth. That's really heavy on things like geography, marriage relationships, agricultural living long in the land, famine, orphans, all those things uh, that we find in this short four chapters. Um, and so what do, you, what do you think about, what, what's your perspective on Ruth? Like, how do you like this book? Um, like, it, to me, it's always just been such a fun text to study. Yeah, I, I mean, when I was studying and learning Hebrew, I, I really loved uh, taking time to read through it. And in the Hebrew, and this was many years ago, and I have always found a deep appreciation for the uh, the beauty of the story and the beauty of, of Ruth and Boaz and, and their character and, and how they are and then also just all of the peripheral elements that are that are happening on the stage in the scene of of these uh, these stories unfolding in Bethlehem and Moab right you know and, and that's the thing about Ruth I think is like everyone recognizes like this is a great story like there's these great moments where Naomi is toast. Like she's got nothing left yeah. and she's telling Ruth, like you go away. And we have these moments of, but we all recognize regardless of cultural background that are powerful, you know, wherever you go, I will go. Your God is my God. My people are your people where you die. I will die. Like that works across the board, regardless of culture. It's ontological cool. Like it's yeah. just essentially yeah. cool and powerful, but it's kind of funny when you read the book of Ruth in the 21st century, like, why does it work as a story? Like what, what is at the root of this story, pun intended, uh, that, that makes it, um, that makes it work. And, yeah. and I think that's why I think it's such a fun 
manageable story, both for interpreting Hebrew, but also for touching on these cultural backgrounds that are just kind of an assumed element for the biblical peoples and the authors that yeah. they just know, you know, famine's a big deal. Orphans, widows, you know, this is a big deal. We got to care for them. This is a story that is completely peppered with tragedy uh, and challenge throughout. So you got, it starts with Ellie Melek, this, this guy who's going to have about a minute in the story of existence. <laughs> and he's got these two sons and his wife, Naomi, they live in Bethlehem and uh, Bethlehem, you know, Bethlehem in Hebrew is the house of bread. It's a, it's a known place geographically in this land to produce cereal crops for, uh, for the sustenance of, of many families in the village uh, for, for weeks and months of the year. And there's a famine. So there's not been enough rain uh, clearly, you know, preceding winter, and they need to go somewhere else. And so they're, they've heard there's bread over and there's grain to be had in Moab, the plains of Moab. And if anybody's ever been there, you've been there, yeah? Yes, yeah, yes, many yes. Times. Yeah, and actually I think there's a, there's a question as to, you know, what, where they're going, like, yeah. and why they would go to Moab. And, um, and this is kind of maybe our first, like, geographical thing to think about in the, in the, in the book of Ruth, like I've been to both sides and you've been to both sides of this area of, of, of Israel and, and Jordan. And one doesn't really get the impression that, um, one is necessarily better than the other. Um, but, and so what is Moab yeah. to, to Ruth and Naomi and to Elimelech and, and Elimelech's sons? And there's really two options. One option is what most people tend to go with, and that would be the plains of Moab. Now, the plains of Moab, um, ironically, are not in Moab. Um, this is they're mainly referenced in the Book of Numbers and the Book of Deuteronomy. For instance, the the Book of Deuteronomy is supposed to have been written in the plains of Moab. This is the area to the northeast of the Dead Sea. It includes Abel Shatim. Um, and several other sites that are that are there, including the very large and very significant Tel El Hamam. Um, in fact, we did two whole episodes on why Tel El Hamam is not Sodom. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to those, but nevertheless, this place is very significant as a um, as a place for water. It doesn't rain much there. It literally is just like what you have across the valley at Jericho. But the reason why it is so fertile is because what happens in the rain pattern as the water comes off the Mediterranean from the, the north and the west, as it sweeps across the watershed ridge, which we're you know, sitting on right now, uh, the water mainly dumps on, the, uh, on that ridge and goes towards the west. But then when it hits the high points of Hebron, Bethlehem, Jerusalem, and, and so on up towards Shechem, the, the clouds dissipate. And you don't have nearly as much rain in this area called the Judean wilderness and almost no rain when you get to the Dead Sea area where the plains of Moab is. But here's why it's significant for that area, because all those clouds reform on another watershed in Transjordan and do the same thing where they drain towards the west. And so the eastern side of the Jordan River is really the breadbasket of Transjordan, not because it receives so much rain on the land itself, but because all the wadis, all the nahals, you know, the jabbok and so on, they drain down. And the place that's the most 
abundant is right there in the plains of Moab. This is where the Israelites would have been. So that's one option. And it, and it, it could be that that's where Ruth, Naomi, and so on are ending up. I tend to think, though, uh, that it's a reference to the, uh, the Moab Plateau, which would basically be between the Nahal Arnon, sort of the Grand Canyon of uh, the Middle East. That's it's big. Just, it's big and fantastic. And the, the Wadi Kirak, where you have the area of Kir. This is where Mesha would have been. It's a much more pastoral, but they also have a lot of access to water and, and crops. So I would put it more likely directly across. And if they're going there, they're doing kind of the uh, ascent of Z's route. You know, they're going down past Tekoa. They're getting down to the Dead Sea. They're crossing over the Tongue or the Lisan and climbing up to this plateau. Uh, but the answer is we don't really know for sure uh, where they are, but it's one of those two locations. And we can visualize either one and why they would go there because the famine is not as severe in either one of these locations. What we what we do know is that it's not Israel. And right. these Israelites are not receiving the blessing that they have hoped for in this promised land that they live in, and they have moved to a whole other geographical territory with foreigners. Not only that, the story takes a twist because the two boys, Machlon and Kilion, marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. That's a good good name. Not Oprah. Not Oprah, no, no. Oprah, yeah. <laughs> Not Oprah. I, I don't think it's Oprah. No, no, no it's, it's, no, it's no, Oprah. Oprah. Uh, uh, Orpah, Orpah, there we go. Yeah. And tragedy strikes again. You got the two boys that are, are and the, the father dies, and then two boys die. And now you have these three widows there, Naomi and these two daughter-in-laws, which is just, you know, not the most ideal situation culturally for anybody in the ancient world to be a widow alone is tragic enough to be a widow with two daughter-in-laws also uh, strapped into your your system is just going to be that much more difficult. And Naomi, like you said earlier, she says, just go home, get out of here. You guys head back to your parents. At least maybe you can get married again. And uh, Orpah does. Orpah says, okay, no problem. I'll I'll head out. And then Ruth Ruth has a beautiful saying, I'm going to stay with you no matter what. Right. I'm going to be with you. That it's an oath. It's right? an oath. It's an it's oath a beautiful of loyalty. Oath. Yep. Yeah. No, it's such and, a beautiful thing. And and I think, like, if we go back to this point of like, everyone gets it, and it it can be woven into a you know a cl- you know clothing. I've I've seen that in, in different yeah. places, or put on a ring. And but when or a we, marriage ceremony, marriage ceremony, yeah. and it's a beautiful ceremony, even though it's actually between a mother in law, <laughs> a mother in law and her, and her, yeah. and her daughter. It's just this oath, oath of allegiance, which I think is really. At the root of the Bible, yeah. you know, we often think of, we use the language of, you know, I, I want to be born again and I want to give Jesus my heart, those types of things. And there's nothing wrong with those images, but I think the core way of describing conversion and staying within the, the faith in both Old Testament and New Testament is an oath of allegiance. And whether that's a Psalm to kiss the son while he's on the way with you, lest you be destroyed and he be angry, or it's a John three sixteen, you know, it's, it's this type of thing that Ruth shows. And, and that's why I think actually the geography here, I lean more towards to bring this back around because if it's in the Moab plateau, who's the God there? It's Chemosh, right? It's yeah. a different deity. It's exactly. And, and whereas in the plains of Moab, that's sort of Reuben and Gad's territory, right? Yeah. Yahweh's still around. But in the, the plain of Moab, 
when she's making this case and, and never even being in the land of promise. Your God will be my God. Your God will be my, Yahweh is my God, yeah. you know, and I'm going to go on your ancestral ancestral land. And, and so I think this is maybe bringing up our first, uh, maybe couple of points. And one is, is that Ruth is giving an oath of allegiance first to Naomi, but she's also giving an oath to uh, her God. And the God of, um, of Naomi is a God who cares for widows and orphans. And he's visited his people, yep. which is what the narrative tells us. And Naomi's plan is to return. She says to Orpah and Ruth, out of here, the Lord's visited my people. I'm going back. And Ruth says, I want to know that Lord. I want to know that God. Your God will be my God. I'm with you through thick and thin. Let's do this. And they head back. Whatever way they came, maybe they are going back the same way. They're making their way to Bethlehem. And, and you can tell Naomi's down and out because she's telling you know, telling people who call her Mara bitterness. <laughs> she just she feels completely empty and exhausted. And they get to Bethlehem, these two widows, and they know what to do. And that's what's beautiful about the story and the cultural system that they are entering into. Yeah. It's a cultural system that allows, it is built in and baked into its system, the opportunity for the least of these, the widows, the weak, the orphans to be able to glean and take some of the crop of whatever it might be, cereal or vineyards or olives for themselves in, uh, in times of need. And, and we're right now at the harvest season. They show up to Bethlehem and Ruth is going to get to work. Yeah, you know, and I think that, to me, I think that this is the, this is why this story is so enduring. Because just as you said, it says Yahweh visited his people. You know, if we think of the Old Testament writ large and its macro history of its kings and prophets and denunciations for covenant faithfulness and covenant inf- unfaithfulness, it's it's often that language of, the people being judged or the people being blessed. But actually what Ruth does is it takes it to the personal level of, okay, how does this work in terms of the nuts and bolts of them actually being visited by Yahweh individually, you know? And, and, and I think that that's really the powerful element because he visits his people by rain, right? You know, the Deuteronomy language, it's not like the land of Egypt where you can, lift up your foot and the water flows to your fields. It drinks from the rain of heaven and Galway's eyes are always on that land. You know, Deuteronomy 11, Deuteronomy 12. It's a land I care for. It's a land I care for. And so he's caring for it, but okay, that's great for the, for the country, for the, for my tribe, for my clan. But what about me? Like, what about the individual? And we have all these references, you know, that Yahweh cares for widows and orphans. And this is that, that passage, that like diamond in the rough of how he's orchestrating providentially to care for them in the mechanism that he has set in his, in both culture and in his scripture to how to do it. And that's, and I think it, that's what's so good. In a time everything's going wrong, this is the thing that everything has gone wrong, but it's restored. When, and how it's restored, and I think this is one of the subtle themes in, in Ruth is who will follow what Torah teaches? Who will follow what's prescribed in in God's word. And we find this guy, Boaz, who is a family member and connected somehow to Elimelech, which was Naomi's late husband. And Naomi learns about this and she says, oh, he's here, that's great. Go glean in some fields. And Ruth just happens to stumble in providentially into Boaz's field. And she begins gleaning and 
Boaz shows up. You can tell right away that Boaz is just like, he's just, he's the man. He yeah. comes in and there's like heralding trumpets and they're like, hey, we bless you, Boaz. And Boaz is blessing them. And, and, uh, and then Boaz catches Ruth, you know, he sees her in the field. And I don't know what it is that catches his attention. Is it, uh, is it her hard work? Is it uh, her beauty? Is it uh, none of the above? It's just she's a new person in the field. I don't know. But he talks to his foreman and he basically says, who is this woman? You know. And, and the foreman says, oh, she's, you know, here with Naomi from, she's the Moabitess that's come and, and she's got this reputation for being a woman who shows chesed, this loving kindness, this loyalty that we're talking about. And Boaz sees her doing what is allowed. And we immediately see that Boaz has lived out Deuteronomy 24. He's kept the edges of his fields for the least of these. You know, you can always tell how generous someone is by, by the edges of their field. And even today, you can see that in, in Israel today, if you're in some more traditional places uh, where it's, it's family farming, I've seen edges of the fields still left for those that might need it uh, to come and glean. And so Ruth is here taking advantage of a law-abiding, Torah-abiding man. And then I love what happens next because Boaz tells his guys, he brings them all in and brings them in for a huddle and basically says, okay, guys, don't mess with this young woman. There's this element, uh, he, he, he tells Ruth, I told the boys not to, not to touch you, not to harass you when you're in, you know, in the rest, in the shelter, which is really interesting language because when you start reading the text in the Hebrew, it's a little, it, it's not totally clear what's going on, but there seems to be a measure of protection that Boaz has issued over Ruth uh, and that she should not be touched. And one wonders if it's a little bit of sexual harassment that might be at play here in the under uh, in the underpinnings of the text. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think that that you're you're hitting right on this this point. And what I would like to to even think about a little bit further is, for Ruth and Naomi, it's not like they're wondering how this can be made right. Like they know, the met like when we're approaching this is kind of i think why a, a cultural background study is so significant in the author's understanding in the reader's understanding they know that the only resolution for this is for ruth and naomi not to get an apartment together and have a startup company <laughs> where they're going to become independent that's not an option for them in that culture the only opportunity is for someone within their broader family to redeem them. And the real question is, will that actually happen? Will they remain widows, widows forever and not even have orphans <laughs> or not even have children that they can care for? And then if that does, who will it be? Yeah. Who will it be? And, and I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Like the fundamental understanding of governmental order in not just the Bible, and you could do a study in accordance or logos and do widows and orphans, you're going to find stuff everywhere. It's, it's all throughout the Bible. And we're going to look at that here in a little bit, but it's also something that is cultural to the ancient Near East. I mean, it's, it's not just Moses or the yeah. Psalmist or who, who are coming up with this idea that widows and orphans have to be cared for. It's an essential ingredient to how society works. And if they're not being cared for, it's a sign of injustice. And, and so I, I, what I really like, what you know, the points you made, and I even heard you um, teach on this the other night, is, is that not only do we have it in the scriptures, 
with with Boaz doing this, but it has this this like almost like royal idea to it. Like Boaz, and, and I never really thought about that before. Boaz, and of course we're getting into the end here. He he has the 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 aura of kingship of king. about Absolutely. him, right? A precursor right. to king. He's, he's a he's a precursor figure to this and kingly if you think character. About the canon, the you know, if if you're looking at the Septuagint canon and you end with Judges and you you roll right into Ruth, there has been no king, and you know the story of Ruth functions a bit as a linchpin, a pivot point here for you meet this one guy though. This one guy, though, seems to have a bit of royalty to him, right. and how he's got his swagger. He's got his. He steps up to the 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 the, the field, and he's got he's the man. And I think what we were talking about earlier. Is- yes, yeah, yeah I, I think that's absolutely right. It's one of the things I, I remember learning in college, and and I think just being. I always say that the best way to read the majority. Uh, type of text in the Bible, which is narrative, is to read it as a story. Uh, even though the Bible is not fiction, read it as you were to read fiction. And you, in, in, and and if you think about the order of uh, what we would call the the Christian canon, but as you said, goes back to the Septuagint. It goes Josh. Uh, it goes Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, and. Okay, yeah, Ruth obviously leads us into 1 Samuel, which is leading us, because you have the genealogy at the mm-hmm. end, which takes you to David, and you're going to first encounter David in 1 Samuel 16 with a pretty big coming out party in the next chapter when he's going to be slaying a, a giant. But there's much more going on there in the way that Judges, Ruth, Samuel are working. Judges 17 through 18 is a story about a Levite who's unknown, I mean, that's a, you know, topic for another day. It's really his identity is hidden until it's revealed at the very end, you know, uh, but he starts in Bethlehem. He's a Levite from Bethlehem and he goes to the house of Micah. And there's a, there's a whole element of idolatry there. And it's mentioned twice in that section. In those days, there is no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then we have what is probably uh, tied for the top two or three most grotesque texts in the entire Bible, Judges 19 through 21, which is the the Gibeonite civil war, the rape of the concubine, and so on. And the Levite leaves the area of Ephraim and goes to Bethlehem to retrieve his concubine before the narrative proceeds. And in that narrative, so you have both of these connected with Bethlehem, and in that, and both of those connect with Ruth. So they have the stories that are centered on Bethlehem, which, in the grand scheme of things, Bethlehem is pretty insignificant. I mean, it's not Jerusalem, it's not Hatzor, it's not Megiddo. So to have the arrangement of these three passages, these three vignettes, yeah, strange. And then centered around the phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what is right in his own eyes. Well, yeah, that's the situation for those five chapters. But what about this chapter as almost like an extension of the book of Judges, where actually one guy was doing what was right, even when there was no king. And, you know, maybe he should be the king. That's that's kind of the idea of if you're looking at it on the macro level. And, and, and what's so exciting for, for me, and I know you, we love the land, is it's tied to place. It's tied to Bethlehem. It's tied to the ideas of kingship. And if we're to take this even a step further, yeah, do it. It doesn't. It doesn't just relate to Bethlehem. It also relates to Saul, because where's Saul's hometown? Yeah. Gibeah, where there's not Bethlehem, where there's rape, 
There's, uh, I mean, they're, they're even trying to do homosexual rape, just like, you know, a, a Sodom and Gomorrah situation. And that's the origins of Saul, who, Tragic. you know, with Jabesh Gilead, they yep. come in and marry. That's his, that's his homeland. So it's, it's really already in Judges, long before you meet Saul, long before you meet David, the perceptions of who family, land, connect, connection, lineage, those are already being baked into what we should expect of Saul, who's tall than everyone else, yeah. and yet he's not the one to bring the sword to the battle. Whereas David, he's young, and yet his his destiny has already been foretold by the actions of his forebearers. Um, and, and so, okay, one last thing. Uh, but what's great about that too is, is destiny and lineage is not everything. Because my whole, my favorite character in this whole uh, swath and epic of Judges through Second Samuel is Jonathan, right? He's a product of yeah. this too, and he's the guy who, when he when he encounters the king in the way, yep. he bows the knee, gives him his sword. So, you know, your lineage and destiny is not foretold by everyone. You still have the the right to act and and pay homage to the king. Yeah. But so that's what's so beautiful about this story. It's it's both a beautiful story in its own right. But once you pull back and you see what the canon does, at least according to the Septuagint, you see that clearly they were trying to tell this bigger story. And then we have a different version of the canon, which also kind of tells a similar story with Proverbs, right? Yeah, it's, it's different when you, uh, you know, our English Bibles adopted the, uh, the ordering that we have in the Septuagint. And if you have a Masoretic text and the Masoretic orderings that are in, that are found in the, um, the BHG, the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, the uh, the ordering is really fascinating if you open your BHG up, because you have Ruth, which is sandwiched between two interesting books, sandwiched between Proverbs, so Proverbs precedes Ruth, and then it's followed by the song, the song of Solomon or the song of songs which are two interesting books when you think about it because neither one of them have to deal, are dealing with the time period of the judges. You know, this is where you also see the Greeks having a deep interest in uh, his, history from a chronological standpoint. So they, you know, Ruth opens with in the time of the judges. And so they naturally are going to connect it right there with that book, uh, the book of Judges, which is, you know, that's late Bronze Age, early Iron Age period. What we have in... The Masoretic text is a very different storytelling and narrative happening. We have Proverbs ending, which is a book all about wisdom. What does a wise man look like? Well, we're going to meet that wise man in Boaz. We're going to meet the wise man who follows Torah and lives out Torah, which Proverbs is all talking. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We have a man that we meet now in the flesh, Boaz, who lives his life this way. In fact, culturally, He's invited to marry Ruth, and frankly, he could have. He, he could have did whatever he wanted, but he was such a law-abiding, Torah-abiding man that he said, you know what, the, the, the law in Leviticus 25 says that the nearest kinsman should serve as the redeemer, and I'm going to just be honest with you, Ruth, there's a nearer kinsman than me. And so he goes to the city gate to do some of his work at the city gate, which is a very cultural uh, thing to do in the Iron Age. You'd gather with the elders, and you would sort out uh, matters of justice or or problems, uh, making sure that uh, 
scales are balanced and, and, and so on and so forth. Boaz goes to the gate and talks to the kinsman redeemer that should be in line. He says, hey, look, I got good news. Elimelech's property is up. Do you want to take it? And the guy's response is absolutely. Sure. He's got like dollar signs right. in his dollar eyes. Signs. He's like, I'll take, yeah. I'll take that property. 401k, sounds, yeah, baby. That yeah. sounds awesome. Beit Lechem, another field. <laughs> Beit Lechem, exactly. Yeah. I'll put barley in there and, and weed. It'll be great. And then Boaz says it also comes with these, these two ladies, you know, the widows, uh, Ruth and, and Naomi. And you need to do your duty as the kinsman redeemer to, to continue the line of Elimelech. And immediately, guys, like, I don't want it. And he even says, it's going to ruin my own estate to have these, these yeah. women around. Yeah. And the question is like, well, first of all, we need to explain like what kinsman Goel, you know, Redeemer is, and then also its relationship to Leverett marriage. But yeah, like we, we know kind of like what that looks like, and we'll describe what that means here in a minute. But... <laughs> What is Elimelech's situation? Does he have another wife? Uh, I never kind of just yeah. never alludes. Or what's this guy's situation? Does he have multiple wives? It, it's it's kind of left ambiguous. But I think you're absolutely right that um, if we think if we go back to this question of canon, one yep. is pointing. I to, tangented off. I'll get back on that. No, no, no. <laughs> one is pointing to the genealogical and yeah. lineage, and the other one is pointing to wisdom. And I would just like to to ask the question. To maybe not to you, but I'll ask you and the, the audience is which one is right? Like which yeah. <laughs> which one is God's word? And, and well, what do you think? there's such there, the, the threads run deeper in the Masoretic text if you think about it because Proverbs 31 is the final book of Proverbs and it's all about the Ashet Chayil, the the wise woman, the honorable woman, and that's the exact phrase that the writer in Ruth uses to describe Ruth. She is. In Boaz's words, an Eshet Chayil, a woman of noble character. She's upstanding. And if you watch Ruth act, she's living out business, family, every area that Proverbs 31 articulates about the most noble woman that one could find. And so now we have these two personified figures in uh, the, these two figures discussed in Proverbs, the man and the woman, now they get personified in Boaz and Ruth in a beautiful, elegant way. And that book ends with the procreation of a child, which you then lead into the song. And the song is this eight chapters of, you know, rated R poetry <laughs> that I don't know if I'm ready to let my son start reading yet, but yeah, it's, that's, that's the, you know, the Patreon version of uh, uh, biblical, yeah, stuff. yeah, <laughs> the, the behind the scenes stuff. I yeah. think I think there's something going on there because uh, that's now wisdom about romantic relationship and healthy progress forward through connection, conflict, tension, all of it in that song. That I think is is really really remarkable. And we see perhaps the wisdom of. Boaz and Ruth also being manifest there as well in those nameless characters. So I think one canon, the Septuagint, is interested in who's the king. And I, this just struck me as we were talking. What is Naomi's husband's name? Naomi's husband's name is Elimelech. Elimelech. Yeah, yeah. My God is king. <laughs> My God is king. It's yeah. this idea of it's getting right after kingship, even right. in the name of the deceased late husband of Naomi. And I think you're right on something here. Who will be our king? And then it ends with who will be the king. Right. David and, and is the great, yeah. Exactly. And this is exactly what Judges is doing as well. I mean, you have every single one of the judges being, well, will this guy be the guy? He's got some sons, but they're not so great. The, the key one is Gideon, right? And it says his son's name is Avimelech. You know, my father is the king. Yeah. And it's like this period of aborted kingship where 
he's really he gets he gets slain by some by a lady throwing a millstone at his head. Like yeah. he's clearly not the guy. And so <laughs> it's it's part of that genre. I, I guess by by means of an analogy of you know we we really shouldn't boil it down to the question of which one is right. Both are different ways that people of faith in the Israelite Jewish tradition, including Christianity have approached these and have read them. And I, and I would say, uh, to use an analogy, my preference to read the Chronicles of Narnia is the way that they were written, starting with the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, all the way to the last battle. But chronologically, yeah, you don't read the boy and his horse. Uh, well, I do, but I, you know, I, I read it as book four, book four, I think, but yeah, book four. But if you read it chronologically, you start with the magician's nephew, even yeah. though that was the one that was written sixth. So, but both have their own value for reading them whichever way you want. And I think that's more or less the same, more or less the same here. But here's what I want to ask you though. Okay. Because we, we skipped a tantalizing detail in this story. Uh, we, we, you know, we talked about, you talked about how they, they leave the, the, the fields open. And I was even going to point out that this is something we even see Jesus and the disciples doing, you know, they're, they're going yeah, through the fields picking and picking grain. the grain. They don't have, um, a seven 11 that they can go to, to get a Slurpee. Uh, this is their, this is, you know, they're, they're, they're literally sustaining themselves. We just lost a whole bunch of listeners. Oh yeah. They, they were really excited about, you know, the idea and the prospect of the Bible having a seven 11. It'd be nice. This is their seven 11. So, but, but when Ruth is doing that yeah. and then now Naomi, so this is before they've made the agreement and before they're going to the, the gate, we have Naomi really being the Yinta here. She's the matchmaker and she's setting the stage. She, she's got her Mark Boaz and, and she thinks he's going to follow through on what's going to be able to get Elimelech his inheritance, raise up children for her and all that. And, and she's got a plot. She's got know? a plot. She's got a plot. So tell me about that plot and tell me about the, the, I think it's overdone here. Like people will say it's super sexual and some people will say it's not sexual at all. I think both of you are on, uh, on the idea. Both of us are on the idea of there's certainly a sexual overtone, but what, what do you think about this, this passage when Ruth comes yeah, by night? I'll, I'll read it. I got it right here. I'm, I'll read it out of an English, um, English, uh, the ESV. So Ruth is, Ruth is telling, or Naomi's telling her quick, you know, get up, wash, you're going to go anoint yourself, put on your cloak, go down to the threshing floor. Uh, remember, this is harvest season, so they've been gathering in their grain. They've been uh, they've been bringing it to the threshing floor in their bundles. They're bringing the threshing sledge out. They got their perhaps oxen or donkeys yoked up, and they're cruising. Which is around. a really dangerous point, right? I mean, they got to yeah, protect. No pun this intended. is yeah, no, no pun intended. <laughs> this is a really dangerous time in the season because this is all their wealth right there, yeah. and if it's lost, you're, yeah. you're like Samson burned the yep. sheaves of the Philistines when they're sitting here. So this is a really dangerous. So time. that's why he's there. This is his property. This is his investment. He's guarding it. He's, he's, if anybody's going to guard it, I'll guard it, is what he says. And so he's lying down here. He's finished uh, eating and drinking. And then Naomi says, when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uncover his feet and lie down. Then go and he will tell you what to do next. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is the uh, this is the meat cute. Yeah, yeah. so it's it, you know what does that euphemism mean to uncover the feet? We see it elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. The one I'm always reminded of. It's not exactly sexual, but it does have to do with um, 
bodily movements and other elements is with, with Saul when he's hiding in the cave in first Samuel 24 yep. and David is in the cave and it says Saul is uncovering his feet, uh, which is basically a nice way, a euphemistic way of saying, you know, using he's number two. himself. He's exposing himself. So and this is an exposure. Yep. Definitely. This is an exposure. And uh, why, why is she doing this? What is the custom behind that? We aren't told. Clearly the writer thinks we understand it. Yeah. And you know, I, even, even this, like when we get to the end of the story and they, they, they make the agreement with the unnamed closer kinsmen, what do they do? They, they pass sandals, which yeah. they say, this was the custom back in the day. Yeah. But it has to do with feet and it has to do with the connection somehow between sexual activity, sexual uh, relationships, and also the authority of a woman within that relationship under, you know, under a new husband. And it has to do with sandals. It has to do with feet. Yeah. Now it's not, it's not what we first think of no. today. Um, because especially we have such a visual medium. Uh, and of course you could even read in literature, which would be much more explicit. But what I love about this story is even though it's euphemistic and even though there's these overtones of, of sexuality, it's also very descriptive of what happens. Like you can visualize this story in a way that's pretty powerful, like night. Yep. And she's like got a robe on, maybe, maybe a, maybe a overcoat blanket. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's happening all in the night before the morning and they're worried about perception. And it's cool. It's gonna be cool. I mean, we're, we're May, maybe probably April, May. It's chilly still at night, especially the desert, the desert fringes are are cool up on the mountain, the Judean highlands. And you're going to get your breezes blowing through. And so he's sitting there, his feet get uncovered. <laughs> Ruth comes down, she's sneaky feet. On, on limestone. I mean, sleeping on limestone yeah. with sandals on, yeah. your feet are going to get cold. Yeah, yeah, you're going to have chilly toes. Chilly toes. Chilly toes. And she uncovers his feet. It's exactly what the text ends up saying. She came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled. So I'm like, how, what, what time did she get this going? And how yeah. long do they lay there with his feet uncovered yeah and she's just laying there it's left unsaid <laughs> but on the other hand lest we think too uh, uh risque about these two noble characters we're told by boaz that you gotta get out of here before anybody sees us exactly and that tells us a little bit about what's happening here it is risque and we could potentially bring shame upon ourselves by this action that we're doing. So he, but that's what, that's, that's the tension in the, the text tension. though, because yep. what they're doing, what Ruth is doing through Naomi, who would be a protector of that honor. Mm-hmm. Like she, that's her job yep. really in this instance. If, if, if Ruth has a, someone over her, it's, it's Naomi and Naomi has put her in this position to risk the, the threat of being turned away or even abused, yeah. which ruins all prospects but she's willing to do it because they trust that Boaz is the man who they think he is. Mm-hmm. And, and of course they're proven right. Yeah. So it's this, there's so many tension points in this narrative that again, if you just read it in English without knowing the cultural background, you can kind of get the sense, but when you know the cultural background, you see that the, that the author of this beautiful story is just 
making this, he's, he, I assume it's a he, maybe it's a she, they're heightening all of these points to make us think, wow, well, this could go bad, this could go wrong, oh, well. and then finally, you know, the, the tension is released. And, and you can... <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I love what Boaz says, Boaz... You know, he says, you could have run after younger men. You could have, you know, you could have ran after the rich. Instead, you've chosen me. So there's a clear uh, tradition and cultural element here of connection, of prospective marriage, of uh, invitation. And it's intimate on that threshing floor. And yet it's all controlled and uh, controlled with, with two people with great integrity. And it's, it's, uh, it's going to bring about something wonderful in the end, uh, in this whole reality and it'll end, end with a beautiful son. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we know that, you know, there's multiple generations here, but it's, it's leading us to David. I mean, he's, he is the focal point. He is the unseen main character of this whole thing. And so when we meet David, son of Jesse, the first thing we should think of is Boaz. So he yeah. is the, he as as much of the and you know if we if we put this all together with the canon, unfortunately, we, David's David's treatment of women. Might, well, you know, it's a mixed bag. Uh, it's might a, not it's, be it's, as appropriate as Boaz's. <laughs> it, it, it's it's a mixed bag for it's sure. A mixed bag. Um, but you know, it, even if you look at his lineage, Judah's there. Yeah. You know, Judah with Tamar. Yep. You know, and you have at least according to the Christian tradition, Rahab is there. Yep. You know, so you have these these women who are major components in in the narrative that carry this story and the idea of of widows and and their children. You know, one one other thing that, um, and then I would like to talk a little bit about about widows and orphans in the larger context. But one one thing that I think is really incredible about this story is not just that it's personal. It's not just that it's in those days, everything is going wrong, and this is the thing that's going right. Um, and even though it all is all about David, a son, what does Naomi talk about? Not the, the child of of Ruth and Boaz. She talks about Ruth as being more to her than seven sons. Mm. And as far as as far as a text goes, that's very patriarchal <laughs> for sure, and is very much focused on the idea of, of, of inheritance relating to the firstborn son. And then that's what, what's really going on, right? With the Leveret marriages that they're literally, you know, it's, it's Boaz who is marrying Ruth, but their child doesn't count for Boaz according to Levitical law. It counts for Elimelech. And so the son of Elimelech is actually the, the, the biological offspring yeah. of, of Ruth and Boaz. But even though that's what's according to the law, even mm-hmm. though that's what's according to what's prescribed and cultural, Naomi can make the statement that Ruth, a Moabitess who was a widow, who had the chance to leave, is worth more to her than seven sons. Wow. And I think it's just this beautiful mirror that goes back to what... Ruth said at the very beginning, wherever you go, I will go. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. Wherever you die, I will die. And it's, it's family and blood is not everything. It's these oaths we make to people that we love. And it's the oath we make to the one true Lord that governs those. And that if we put our trust in him, he will make it right both on the macro level of 
all the way to David and beyond, you know, the Messiah is through that line, but also the personal level, whether it's in this age or the age to come, you know, and, and, and think, so that, I think that, that what we have in the story of Ruth is just such a picture of why the Bible is not only um, truth, but it's a great story that we're a part of yeah. and, and it fits all and hits all those levels. So why don't we talk about this idea of, of widows and orphans though? Like, yeah. Let's, let's think about it's it, prolific in the ancient world. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the canonical ones? Like some of the sums like we talked about maybe with Job and some other elements. Well, yeah, we see it clearly in, you know, Deuteronomy 15. Uh, I think Deuteronomy 15, 11 talks about, you'll always have the poor in your land and it is our duty to take care of it. Jesus even will pull on that himself in the New Testament era. In the Second Temple period, he will say the poor will always be with us. Uh, the, the idea of, of the poor being with us all the time isn't necessarily a problem. It becomes a problem, as Amos will address, when we are blind to them and unwilling to extend assistance and support to them. Uh, you know, from the corners of our field being enlarged to the uh, the offering and gift that we might be able to provide for them. So, you know, you look go to Job. One of the things that Job and Job's a long, uh, beautiful, uh, challenging uh, dialogue between Job and and friends and God in the midst of loss and hardship. One of the things that Job will talk about in his defense of himself is in twenty nine, and I love this passage. Uh, he talks about how he served at the city gate, and it makes me think of Boaz. You know, he got to the city gate, how Boaz has acted with Ruth and Naomi, these two widows, uh, and how he would have acted perhaps with orphans. Here's what Job says in chapter 29, verse, uh, where was I at? Here we go. Verse 7, when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. This middle-aged guy coming in. He, he's, he's the boss, apparently, in the city gate. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The voice of the nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the roof of their mouth. When the ear heard, it called me blessed. And when the eye saw, it proved. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. What gave Job his status, his significance, according to him? <laughs> it's like, right. It is a little bit like, you know, I'm patting, patting myself on the back here. But according to him, what gave him the status in this culture to be at the gate, to have a voice at the circle, was he took care of the poor when they cried out for help, and he took care of the fatherless who had none to help them. He goes on and talks about how I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I love that. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. So he's not only providing for the orphans and the widows, he's also spending time giving presents to those with challenging disabilities in life where they can't see or they can't, can't walk. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey in his teeth. I love that. That's some strong poetic language. This is a really important moment in the book of Job too. It's kind of like Job's, uh, it's not his last ditch effort, but he's like basically saying, look, like I, I for sure am not being punished because of my inability to be just or ethical. No, I'm far from it. Like, I was an ethical guy. I was justice. And what was I? I was at the city gate taking care of the fringe 
people of society, which is a total uh, manifestation of what it means to be somebody who lives by the Torah, by the by the book. Yeah, it's almost like the Bible is concerned with justice for some yeah. reason, and you know, it, it's everywhere. And you know, I, I think that what you what you really see is not only in in something like Job, but the Psalms especially bring up the idea that it is the Lord who watches over strangers. He is the one who upholds the orphan and the widow. And it's just all over the place when we, when we talk about the Psalms and especially as we get into some of the, the Psalms like Psalm 94, Psalm 68, it's, it's the connection between caring for widows and orphans between what Yahweh is doing and then how he has set up his king to be the protectors of widows and orphans. We see this in the prophets. We see it in the poetry. We see it in, in Torah, that it's setting up this idea that the way that justice is, is passed down is through the caring of widows and orphans. And I, I'd actually like to take this uh, a couple steps further because one might get the idea that this is only a Hebrew Bible, Old Testament idea. And, and I just quite frankly think that it's not. That it's, not. It's, it's, it's much bigger than that. Um, and, and maybe the easiest, the easiest place to do this is a book like James. You know, what is the, the great line, James three twenty seven? I think it is, true and unbridled religion before God is this, caring for widows and yep. orphans in their desolation and not to be, to be stained by the world. Um, and so he's encapsulating, as Jesus would do, um, the great commandment, which James is doing all the time. Yep. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's another way of saying it. But even if we think of Jesus, his, his career, especially in the synoptic gospels, is very orphan, very widow folk, very, very sojourner uh, focused. And when we think of that, it is, um, he, he's, he's doing things as a prophet, like the prophet Elisha. He is caring for widows. He's caring for orphans. Many of the miracles he does in the absence of kings that are doing the right thing, it's the prophets that do that. And that's just what Jesus does. And, and the last thing I'd say is, as we, as we wrap this up, is that this is not only in the Bible. Yeah. If we look in Mesopotamian literature, if we look in Ugaritic, if we look in Egyptian literature, it's literally everywhere. And, and I think to me, this is one of those things that, I get excited about like people want the Bible to be unique. And I really believe the Bible is unique in the story that it's telling, but this is something that I think is part of being made in the image of God. That when we talk about caring for those who are oppressed, it's not something that's only going to show up in the Bible. In fact, in the story of, of Ruth, it's, it's, it's couched in Boaz doing this while other people refuse to, he's protecting, he's protecting Ruth. He's protecting Naomi. <clears throat> But we can look at perhaps one of the most famous texts from Ugarit, the Epic of Danel, or the, the Danel, the, it's called the Epic of Danel, or, or the story of Danel, um, or excuse me, the Epic of Akkad. And at, when Den, Denalu, this man of Rephau, when he takes up his seat in the city gate, this is what it says, he arose and sat at the entrance to the city gate among the leaders sitting at the threshing floor. Mm. I mean, that's... <laughs> literally the same context as what Boaz is doing at Bethlehem. What does he do? He judged the widow's case and he makes decisions regarding the orphan. And so there's a certain human level 
of, 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 of general revelation that widows, orphans, sojourners, those that have no power, they need to be cared for. And true kingship, regardless of who you are, is doing that. Yep. I, I want to just throw this in there because I just pulled up uh, some research I did on this a while back. But texts that are law codes or Egyptian instruction texts that mention the care of the poor, widows, orphans, elderly, handicapped, the stranger or the foreigner, and, and care, this all gets connected with hospitality as well. Text that mentioned, we have it in the laws of Ernamu, which was a Sumerian text dating you know, over 400 years ago. We have it in uh, the laws of Eshnuna. We have it in the laws of Hammurabi. We have it in the Middle Assyrian laws in the, uh, in, in, around, the, around the time of the Exodus, probably, uh, over in Assyria. We have laws about the poor and the widows in uh, Exodus. We find it in the Hebrew Bible. We find it in um, all over in, uh, in Egyptian instruction literature, too. We have it in Mary Kare in, in the instructions of Patach. Uh, there, there is a command about taking care of the least of these. So it's a very ancient widespread idea. One of the things I've noticed, uh, maybe you've seen it too, I've noticed that the Bible takes the idea uh, and, and sharpens it a little bit, puts a little bit more challenge to it, very much like we see Jesus doing with Scripture when he shows up. Uh, when he shows up, Jesus is saying, you know what, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor as yourself, right? Uh, well, I tell you, you should also... Love those who, who hate you and pray for those who persecute you. It's this idea of taking something. We, we knew we were supposed to love the stranger and the foreigner according to Leviticus. But now Jesus is saying, you know what? It's a little bit bigger than that. I'm going to sharpen. And we see that rhythm always happening with the scriptures. It takes an idea, a good idea, and brings it to a whole nother level even of demand, of a desire. And often that demand and desire is going to be more rewarding for the recipient. It is going to be more full of grace, more full of mercy for the benefactor. And I think that's a pretty uh, rich observation to, to lean into uh, for ourselves and to be thinking about as we, yeah, as we ponder. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And, and just, just wrapping up here, I would say if, if we bring this back full circle to Ruth and Jesus, what we have in the story of Ruth is a story that does it right. Like we, we have it in law code. We have it in the ideal. Here's how it's done in space and time with the person of Boaz, where even, even though people that don't have God's word, they know that it's the right thing to do and they see it as an ideal. It doesn't always happen. And even people that have God's word, <laughs> they know it's the ideal and they're told to do it and they still don't do it. Boaz does it. And Ruth has a major role to play in actively pursuing it. And of course, as you indicated, so does Jesus. He, he's, he's taking it to that next level of application. And so I think in, in, as, we're, as we're wrapping up this episode, what we can see is by examining the cultural backgrounds of this story, we see where the problems are. We see where, you know, how they were being oppressed, how they were powerless, and how someone can step in as a hero, a kingly figure in the form of Boaz, and, and save the day. But also, the the person of Ruth and Naomi have agency. They're the ones who are acting as they should to put themselves in the position for God to restore this 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 relationship. And I think that's one of the, why it's my favorite 
biblical stories there is. So good. It's such a it's such a beautiful story, and I look forward to doing more of this kind of the next stuff. Episode. Cultural backgrounds, you know, what Cultural a great thing to do on biblical world. We'll have to do one next. That you had you had an idea. We'll have to bring bring it full circle. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to do another another one of these. But right. thanks thanks for coming on, yeah. and you know, we'll make this a more regular thing as we start this new series from from Jerusalem to from wherever you are. Jerusalem from Jerusalem right to your ears. So right to your for ears. all you listeners who are listening to Biblical World. In the words of Kyle Keimer, keep on digging. You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study/donate. Until next time, keep digging.